everyone and welcome to Celebrating Cinema, a podcast striving to rebuild our beloved community, creating a more inclusive and shared experience. After the last episode where we explored cinema's relation between fiction and reality, it was only right we discussed the form of documentary making. So here to kick us off is Kiriko. To film or not to film? To make your subject cry or to offer a shoulder to cry on? How close is close enough, and how close is too close? The duty of a documentary filmmaker is to show how master of reality Werner Herzog likes to call it, the ecstatic truth, a truth that is not necessarily fact-related, but more so a story that is an intensification of the world as we know it. In search of this truth, the documentarian is on an everlasting quest for the secret stories, the hidden pain that has not yet seen the daylight, or the, often troublesome, characters whose voices are yet to be heard. And mankind is vain. If a documentarian asks you to make a film about your life, you will most likely say yes. We like to believe that we are special and that we have a story to tell. The responsibility a documentarian then carries to create a spectacle of one's life is tremendous. How does one exactly create this ecstatic truth? And how does one mold the truth to create the story that we believe is the right one to tell? This is where cinema comes into play. Cinema is a place where realer than real images can be created, where we, we can film the wishes and nightmares that people have. In a good documentary, human ability and human evil is exposed at its best. Eyesight. Some men just want to watch the world burn, and some men just want to come all over it. Truthful words, which could have been mine, but it's the catchphrase for the new VPRO Dutch documentary series, Zaatvanker Bath, or in English, Seeds of Deceit. Right upon graduating from the Dutch Film Academy, documentary filmmaker Miriam Goodman delved into the genetic heritage of Jan Kerbaat, a Dutch fertility doctor who, for years, secretly used his own sperm instead of donors. The aftermath of this crime only became evident after his death. Over 68 people have now officially come forward as a donor child of Jan Kerbaat. The film questions not only the mad intentions of the perverted doctor, but follows the lives of his children, raising questions about nature-nurture and family relations. Gudmund successfully recreates the fantasy worlds of the mothers, children, and male donors involved. She uses methods that we might recognize as fiction. The series are a play of reenactments, interviews, found footage, fly on the wall, animation, and visual depictions of sperm everywhere, which some might argue is on the edge of what it means to capture reality. The documentary recently premiered at Sundance and has been largely discussed ever since. We are enlightened to welcome director Miriam Goodman at the table today to discuss her new film, Documentary Ethics and the Thin Line Between Reality and Fiction. Hi, thank you so much. What a great <laughs> introduction. Welcome. Thank you. So your film came out a couple of weeks, months ago now? Weeks? Uh, the last episode has been broadcast this week. So, And everybody around me has been talking about it. Well, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> how how are you feeling right now? 
a bit tired and overwhelmed, but also very happy and grateful. It has been a crazy ride since Sundance. And yeah, it's amazing that I, that it has been sort of what I heard, the talk of the day, that many people have been discussing the film. And yeah, that's incredible after working on it for four years that it has actually the impact you, you wish for. So yeah, I'm really happy. Super nice. And you, of course, uh, decided some time ago, a couple of years ago, that you wanted to become a filmmaker, I think. But we're curious to know when this seed was first planted. We want to ask you, do you still remember what the first movie experience is that you had when you were a child? Mm, I think it was (laughs) E.T. I I watched that and I was super scared. (laughs) And E.T. has been following me in my my nightmares, not ever since, but for for a couple of years back then. And I think that it, yeah, it made a really strong impression on me just to experience. And I was really intrigued back then already that film is such a strong medium and that you can actually have have nightmares for weeks just (laughs) because of watching E.T. And I was raised in a very cultural family, but not specifically a movie loving family, nor was I very interested back then. So it was not like I was raised with Hitchcock or Russian films or classic Italian films like Dolce Vita. I watched The Notebook about 50 times and Sex in the City about 100 times and that was about it. And my parents even discouraged me to apply to film school because I, uh, they thought I hadn't watched enough films back then. And I even asked my friend because you have to fill out your favorite Dutch films and I hadn't seen any Dutch films. So I even asked my Dutch friend like who are you know well-known Dutch directors I should fill out. Yeah so and I even I applied for documentary instead of fiction because I thought there were less applicants for a documentary. (laughs) So I have really and yeah and and this year my film premiered at Sundance so that's (laughs) what can happen. But this comes close to the true Werner Herzog style of filmmaking right? (laughs) That you basically just have to scam your way into making your (laughs) film because nobody else is going to make it for you. But was, what was the reason that you then did decide to go to Film Academy, even though that threshold seemed kind of high? Why did you want to go over that threshold? I was very interested in image and I, I was photographing from the age of 10. I made a, a big trip with my parents and my sister and I just, yeah, photographed every person that I met. And, and at the markets in Mexico, I would just hide around a corner and take secret pictures and I was just really obsessed with image and photography and then I made a photo series when I was 17 of my peers and classmates who lost a parent or two parents and I was completely shocked and overwhelmed by the fact that so many friends lost a parent and I just didn't know what to do with it and then I decided to make a photo series and it was in the garage of my parents because there was the Actually, where they parked the bicycles because there was the, the most beautiful daylight and through that I discovered that and my camera was really a medium to connect and to have conversations with them, dare to ask questions that I didn't dare without a camera. And and we had really interesting conversations, but nobody could witness them except for me. And that made me realize that I really wanted to tell stories and, and combine image and story together. With and a camera that can press record. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I wanted to go to film school. So it was not like, yeah, I wasn't really raised with you know many movies but i was very interested in storytelling and people and yeah so so was there a moment after sex in the city and the notebook (laughs) that you you watched a film that made you go oh damn this is what i can do with my medium now 
I think it was actually at film school that I, I watched The Act of Killing mm. by Joshua Oppenheimer. And that film really had a huge impact on me and completely blew me away because it d- did not only transform me as a viewer, but it also transformed the characters in the documentary. It's about Indonesia, where many communists were killed and the killers still just walk around freely. And the director asked them to re-experience their killings and relive them and uh, react them. And therefore, the main characters sort of went through an emotional arc of, oh my God, this is what we've been doing. And yeah, that film really blew me away. Which in some way can also be directly linked to the film that you just made, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So was that also an inspiration for you to make uh, The Seeds of Deceit? It was, yeah. That film, together with casting John Bonet, was really um, the origin of the form. So in The Act of Killing, Oppenheimer asks the killers to reenact their murders, uh, their killings. And I asked my subjects who are not killers, but victims of, of the inseminations and often sexual assault to relive those experiences, which was really challenging, of course. And I, I asked a lot from them and I, and I find them extremely courageous for doing so. But I really wanted to confront and also help them in their process of trauma. And th- some mothers even like really thanked me for this experience. And I really believe that documentary, just like fiction, should really captivate the viewer and and I w- wanted the viewers to be present at that moment. And yeah, and I, I think that documentary should be more than talking heads and running behind <laughs> your characters. So therefore I did that. But yeah, The Act of Killing was an incredible inspiration for this series. Yeah, yeah I, can, I can totally see that. And I was also quite captivated by that scene because it also in some ways seems quite risky to do that with those women. And I'm, I'm glad you're saying that they thanked you afterwards, but it could have also maybe gone wrong or I think it's also a method of, of therapy to yeah. to go through an experience again in the same setting. So yeah, it's I'm I'm sure you've guided them in a in a very good way. Yeah, and I was very invested in their lives. We talked about it frequently before we, we shot that scene. So it's not like I opened a door and boom, there was the insemination room. And it was, yeah, it was really daring. And also for me as a director and as a person that those ethical questions, can can I ask that from someone to relive that, ex- that traumatic experience? Yes or no. And it also caused a lot of discussion afterwards. A lot of filmmakers from, yeah, in their 60s <laughs> specifically have their moral questions around Seems like these, but to me, th- these were not the most difficult ethical questions. Actually, yeah. Well, according to you, what was the biggest challenge that you took in making this film, or maybe the scene in which you carried the largest moral responsibility as a filmmaker? A lot comes to mind. I think, yeah. So older documentary filmmakers seem quite impressed with these sexual assault scene and even distressed by the reenactment scenes in the series. But yeah, I personally didn't struggle with it too much because I was really close and still am with all the characters involved. And we discussed it and one mother didn't want to relive that experience. And then, of course, we didn't. So I think it's also very much about just having a moral compass and being sensitive for what the characters in the film want and what they don't want and give them enough time to think about it. But I think I was most concerned with the sexual assault allegations and how I had to bring this news in a truthful and not sensationalist way and 
to the world and to specifically to all the children involved because there are 15 children in the series uh, but there are also 55 uh, half brothers and sisters who are not participating in the series and who also in the last couple of weeks got to know this awful fact about their biological father so i think to me the biggest burden is not the scenes but what they do to to the people involved and what it means to their lives that's what really yeah kept kept me up at night the last weeks i have a question about that because i remember seeing your film as your graduation film at the film academy and then of course there's a limit at how long it can be it's only like 25 minutes or something right yeah what did the you know now it's a three-part miniseries which are i think maybe 50 minutes per episode or something yeah it's 45 yeah 45 so you have so much more time and space to address all of these things did that make that project easier or more Mm. difficult because that very condensed version on the film academy you know there's some things that you already can get into but maybe the more specific things that you're now talking about you know what what did that allow you to have all that time now yeah, I really like that question because I think I could do more justice to the story and that's why I wanted to make a longer version. So that in that sense, it made it easier. But what it made it more difficult was that the condensed version was about two mothers and their two children. Yeah. And it was very intimate and very sort of on an individual level. And it was important for those four characters to recognize themselves. And it didn't really matter what the others thought. Yeah. And now I feel much more that I have to do justice to everybody involved. And the group is so big that that's really difficult because everybody has their own individual story and upbringing and parents. And yeah, that's that's really the most challenging about this project so far. I think that's very funny because it's also kind of reflective of Jan Karbat that your film has to become sprawling in a sense because his enterprise was also very much sprawling and messy and chaotic. So your film somehow needs to deal with his unstructural mess that he made yeah does it sometimes feel like you are cleaning up his mess in a sense it does yeah and and that's an interesting observation because some people do shoot the messenger and i'm the messenger yeah i'm bringing this news to the light and they of course many children are upset i yeah and i'm the person who did that research and who brought it into the world and yeah you can shoot me you can't shoot him because he's he's dead already and I was wondering this because, you know, the Film Academy version of The Seed of the Seed is, you know, also through its intimate nature, very much a product of maybe the Netherlands in a sense as well. It's a postage stamp version of this bigger image, right? And here you expand in your series, you expand on the subject so much that I am wondering in what way did maybe an international perspective also come with that? Mm. Because I can see that some of the people in the film have this kind of strange, Dutch, sober, we don't really talk about this approach to, for instance, sexual assault and rape. And in light of, for instance, the Me Too activism from 2016, which was mostly started in the US, I'm wondering if that international scope or this bigger Mm -hmm. scale maybe change a bit of your approach around surrounding this as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it didn't really change the process, but when I was editing, I realized as for example, this scene, which you edit in a day, you know, you edit that scene in a day and then you think, oh, 
uh, that's a really powerful, intriguing scene. But then when you get closer to the, the final edit, you realize how some scenes will be framed. And you also, we organized a viewing with all the characters involved. And then it's still very intimate. And then when the series were released, for example, the news really picked up this sexual assault fact and they've reposted it and reposted it. And I knew that it was going to be me too, but I didn't know that it was going to be sort of the only sensational fact that was, you know, yeah, put in every strange. news outlet. Because it that's a reductive take on yeah. the whole series because it's not the only sensational No, not at all. Everything about it is in a strange way. <laughs> sensational yeah. yeah but for example i did in my research i found out that there were several doctors around the world who also used their own sperm and i interviewed some of the, those children and they talked about it in such an american way you also see that in the last episode and that's really yeah funny for us dutch people to see how they deal with for example all of them are talking about consent and that word is you know not really <laughs> touch upon as often here because that's not how we deal with those and for example the mothers didn't d they didn't see it as me too yeah but because we live in this time and because i compiled their different stories it is me too and it becomes framed that way because of the zeitgeist and you know the world we live in right now um yeah no that's a really good answer because it's reflective of how vocabulary changed and how that suddenly gets picked up a little bit by the Netherlands, maybe also via a project like this. And in a way, you're also an historian who's putting a certain setting of what something that happened many years ago in a modern day situation. So in that way, I think it's more than correct that it, it gets a Me Too label yeah. in that way. Yeah. I was interested in what you were saying earlier about how you as a messenger of the story also carry responsibility of sort of keeping this family together or at least being the link between all these children and i'm sure you've probably become friends with with a number of them as a documentarian just in general not necessarily for this project how is it that you deal or communicate differently with people that are your friends or people that you want to make movies about yeah i love that <laughs> question i don't give my personal opinion when i'm researching or interviewing my subject so people know me less my subjects don't know me i'd say they know a version of me they know the version who likes to listen because many characters for example read interviews with me now and said oh whoa you have such an interesting family history or i never talk about my personal views on things i don't yeah my tactic is that whenever i research people or listen to people i just really try to listen and understand their point of view and their feelings and their emotions and it's really not interesting what i think or the fact that i just heard an opposite view uh, on the same subject matter because i never talk about you know where i live where i come from or you know my family history it all doesn't matter because they also don't have uh, you know, in Dutch, you would say, they have no aan. Like, it's not interesting because I'm making a film about their lives. Um, what, does it, what, what does it matter? And it's about gaining trust and, and investing time. And it's about just your moral compass. And I did my very best to make the most integer uh, series I could. 
And that, that was my main responsibility. And it's not about building a friendship in an equal way. And it's nice because I became really acquainted with and, you know, we watched the series together and I feel really close to them. But you should, as a documentary filmmaker, I think you should always have the overview. And because also these perspectives were so different from one another, people look at this story in such opposite ways that you shouldn't be opinionated. Also, You shouldn't prefer, you know, one subject to another subject. You should just have the overview and do every single story justice. I think that's also one of the most touching aspects of the film is that it kind of shows that from these crimes there can also be like people find ways to make something very beautiful uh, with it, you know, despite or maybe because of the fact they find ways to bond. But then you also show, and I think that's the maybe genius part, that bonding, that beautiful group of people that are together and form their own improvised family that even there, there's also a form of social exclusion that, you know, the one good thing also always has a different side. And I'm wondering what it was like finding that balance, right? Because you want to do what you say in justice to everybody in a sense. And it is very much about justice because a crime is at the center of the story as well. Yeah. What I find very interesting is that the crime is also the reason they're alive. Yeah. So that in itself is such a you know, double-edged sword. That's what keeps it an interesting story after four years, that it's not just crime. Because if he (laughs) hadn't committed that crime, those children wouldn't have been there. Well, and then, no, that's great. And then how do you, you know, balance the good side of that and then also acknowledge in the present that there is a downside even from that, right? It's like, it's not only, hey, we're a merry, happy, improvised family, but there is also people that know that there is a merry, happy family, but they can't access that because they are feeling the more, let's say, dark side of this crime. Yeah, that's actually the biggest reason that I made a series and not just a, a long documentary. Those perspectives of the parents and the children and the donors are so different. And then, indeed, within these uh, groups, the children also look very differently at what their biological father did and what they think of each other. But that's why I made a mini-series to really show those those different perspectives. Yeah, it's also funny how in some way or another, because you are the person who has the overview of what makes all these characters so different and how they are in some way or another also alike, you have created also their identity because you, in the end, are the person who's also naming the things that they have in common or naming the things that makes them different from one another. So I think probably for these children, I mean, they're not children, they're grown-ups, but for the children as well, you have quite explicitly exposed them to what their similarities are. Do you feel that you are in some way or another also the author of what these family characteristics are? The, the family characteristics, I re- explicitly asked them in my research phase, what do you think are the family characteristics? So I really copied those answers from the uh, children because I found it important that I wasn't making them up <laughs> and that they were really true and genuine. But of course, I'm the author of this story. So, you know, you would have made a completely different film of the same story. And that's, that, that's where the responsibility comes into play 
it was a huge responsibility because it's not just one singular story. There are hundreds of people involved in this story. And I'm also, you know, I'm getting several emails a day from people who went to the clinic and had similar experiences or not. And yeah, that's that's what's really the, the most difficult. And is there also characteristics of, of the family members that came up as you were making the film or things that people started telling you or that people started seeing because you were exposing them to one another or mm, I did really extensive research so I knew upfront for example these characteristics what I wanted to show but it was a story that kept developing so there were for example in episode two the fact that uh, two half brothers of Karbat their half brothers they grew up with were also half brothers <laughs> You have to watch the series to understand this. <laughs> um, <laughs> you made a nice infographic, which shows you exactly how. Yeah, uh, but for example, that so that big donor groups uh, have connections underneath that happened while filming, or for example, I really, as a filmmaker, I hope that the first Karbat child from abroad would be found, and then that happened, so we could film that. So it was really a story that kept on developing and growing, and also. When I started, there were 19 children and now there are 68 children. So often I w would go to bed and then the next day I would wake up and there were new children added to, you know, the group. The um, roster of characters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and all these people have the same hand. I love that. Such a yeah. odd thing. Especially the story of the, of the one woman who tells that she went to his house and that the first thing that he just said was, show me your hands. Yeah. Yeah, you're a Karbat. Yeah. Which for me was such an odd thing because it it becomes a bit religious in a horrible way there, yeah. where it's like, show me your totem. Yes, you are a Christian. You are part of the cult now. Mm -hmm. And all and also there is this very sort of interesting. Maybe it's part of the man himself. There's such a duality about him in in the sense that he did very good things for insemination yeah. and uh, lesbian couples that want or or single moms who want yeah. to have a child. And then he did do it himself, to uh, phrase it um, very awkwardly. awkwardly. But there is a very sort of almost religious feeling among the, among the children where they are, there is almost a purpose in their life to find each other and a very, a very nice sort of communal experience from this, from this tragedy. I wouldn't say that it's their purpose to find each other, but I think that many of them come from families where they couldn't recognize themselves in their legal fathers and they couldn't recognize themselves in their siblings because they were often half-siblings, although Karbat promised the parents that they would have children from the same donor. He didn't. So I think that many children recognize themselves in one another and finally have this feeling of recognition and belonging, which they never had in their own families. But it's also the number is, you know, they're now 68 children. It almost makes them numb for meeting new siblings. And yeah, many of them just pick their favorite uh, three to five half brothers and sisters because you also don't have 68 best friends. You know, it's just yeah. Yeah. too many that's, people. That's, uh, it's interesting that the belonging means a lot, but it starts meaning less and less. Yeah. yeah. To go on that thing a little bit, I was thinking that some of the projects that they undertake is kind of, and now I have to go back to Oppenheimer, right? Kind of an act of healing rather than the other way around. It's kind of this restorative action to, you know, fill up a void that has definitely been there, which it does bring me to a question. 
uh, you were saying that, you know, just yeah, Oppenheimer and the act of killing has been a very inspirational film for a project like this. And we've discussed what that means when you place people in these recreated uh, scenarios to relive certain aspects of their past lives. However, the film is much more than only that. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit because what Kiriko also pointed at, you know, there's a combination of these these reenactments, but also you've done extensive archival research. So much archival footage is there. You have these animations. It's it's a lot of things, you know, just like the, we talked about the sprawling nature of the story. Can you talk about that as a filmmaker, that challenge of combining all of those things? Because it's not a one-note film. Mm-hmm. It has so many, you know, multitudes. I'd love to. When I made my graduation film, it was only, only talking heads. Yeah. And yeah, and a few reenactment scenes. And I immediately realized, okay, I can't (laughs) keep up with only these form elements for a series or for a a long format documentary. And then I thought, okay, well, I'll be just filming documentary scenes where you actually, you know, I was present at one of those meetings where half brothers and sisters meet each other for the first time which was sort of magical and i thought okay i really want to film that and that should just be with a cinematographer who has a camera on his shoulder and it was funny because i i i remember thinking okay can i combine all these form elements and i was like yeah i'll just give it a shot and we filmed at the court case and then i had my first sort of documentary scene and i just edited that myself with my graduation film to see how that worked and I thought, yeah, why not? And then my editor, uh, Sander Nijsto, who's genius. He's he, really good. <laughs> he's incredible. And because the animation part, we didn't budget and we didn't <laughs> write that in our film plan. But some things, for example, that the half-brother of the half-brother is the half-brother of the half-brother was just so, <laughs> so, so difficult to explain to people that we thought, okay, we should really use animation. And luckily, he was willing to do that in his, in his nights. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I really like to watch films, you know, where, where there's really been thought about uh, the form and the aesthetics. And I think that we all watch, you know, Netflix and HBO and many fiction films, but also documentaries where there has been thought about that. So <laughs> I made the film that I wanted to watch if somebody would have made a film about this subject. Mm. I think that's what I did. I watched Casting John Bonet just before I made my uh, graduation film. And that's a film by Kitty Green, yeah. and it's a hybrid documentary film about the death of John Bonet and the large impact it left behind. And the film is the casting process for the reenactments in the documentary. But because all these actors actually live in the place where that murder took place, they also have their own personal views on this murder case. Okay, it's really. <laughs> No, it's a really great film. Yeah. yeah. And and I watched that and I thought, Jesus, this is so multi-layered. That was an incredible inspiration uh, for me. I can also imagine that her film after that, The Assistant, might have been of some value for you as well because it's also about sexual harassment and, you know, all the, like, the crimes. And instead of centered around this towering figure, this Weinstein-esque monster, which is usually what... You know, the media, as you have seen with your film as well, would love to focus on. It also shows what happens at the margins of that story, which is actually the core of the story, because those are the victims, either physically or mentally. 
was that also uh, maybe in some ways an intention? I have. The, I I'm very sorry, but I haven't seen it yet. But I I I would love to watch but it. But then it's but an I interesting could, overlap. Yeah, I guess. yeah, yeah, yeah. But sh she was an incredible inspiration for me. Yeah, yeah. It's it's also nice in in how the characters from casting John Bonet it it plays with the same element that you play with in your film. How people living their lives are a character of a larger story that maybe they're not even conscious of of which you are the author yeah it's a very powerful position that you possess oh also. Yeah. yeah 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 in a good way because i mean you, you told the story in the right way it's very exciting <laughs> i was going to the questions of the yeah. audience i have one question from marco who asked how you get such personal information with such a sensitive subject yeah many People have been asking this question. I think it's really a matter of investment in spending time with these people, in listening to their stories, in gaining trust. And I always ask people for their motivation because I find it really important that that's the right mo motivation or a motivation I can uh, relate to and not like becoming famous. <laughs> and many children also told me like, we just don't want this to happen again. So it's also very an, a very important subject to shed light on. And also it helped many people in rebuilding their relationships. So two mothers and their children really sort of reconnected through conversations they were having because of this series. And while I was there, they're speaking to me, of course, but I also had a really engaged crew and many of my crew members from my graduation film also did the series with me and they were also just so engaged and so involved and so warm to these people. So I think that really, really helped. Where does your duty then lie between doing your characters justice and doing the documentary justice? Yeah, that was a very difficult and interesting transformation because I first I did my graduation film then I researched for one and a half years and then we started filming I think that in the first place you as a documentary filmmaker you should have a moral compass you should be um, sensitive and you should be a really good listener and we organized a viewing at the end of the editing process but before picture lock and uh, where I invited everybody in the series and they all watched it together, which was a really emotional and, and beautiful experience. All of them said, you did the story justice. This is my story. Thank you. That was the most exciting day for me. It was like more exciting than Sundance because that's my responsibility. And some people disagreed with other people in the series, but that that you cannot... <laughs> that's interpersonal. Exactly. That's not between mm -hmm. you exactly. and them. But yeah. when all those individuals feel happy with how I portrayed them, then that's what you can do. That's, that's th beautiful. Yeah. And, and, yeah. yeah. I have one more question from a listener from Instagram who's called Maup with a P, um, who asks what kind of themes you think are interesting and important to uh, talk about in documentary or in film in general? I can't answer that in general, but I, I spoke to John Apple the other day, who's a very interesting documentary filmmaker. And I asked him because now I'm you know thinking about the next subject and I feel like I'm a student again. I feel like I have to start all over. And I said, John, when do you know when it's the right subject? Because I was a little naive back, back then when I you know read this 
article about an insemination doctor who used his own sperm. I was like, wow, that's interesting. But also, okay, I just need to find a graduation film subject right now. And that's that sounds pretty interesting. I had no idea that it would take me four years. And then it became a success. And now I'm a less naive than, than four years ago. And I asked John, like, okay, when do you know it's right? You know, because I read so many articles which I find interesting. When, I, when do you know it's right? And he said, you will discover that you have a couple of themes in your life, which uh, you'll recognize in other people, their stories, but which are about you. So he said, for me, it's loneliness and death. And I don't know, I mean, I'm tw- 26 and this is my first film, but I do know that I find identity always very interesting, injustice. So I'm, I'm trying to, to recognize that when I, <laughs> in, in finding my next subject. John Apple sounds like somebody who should read your tarot cards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe just to end it, because I think I really like your observation that being a documentarian is kind of like being a student perpetually of life, right? Isn't that what it is about? That you just have to observe and learn things and then no, nothing again. make a project <laughs> that you get very stressed about <laughs> and graduate with it all the time again? Yeah. I think that's a beautiful summary of my profession. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Miriam. Thank you. We're very excited, I think, to follow your journey. Thanks so much. And then I think we have a suggestion for the film club for next week. Yes. So our film choice for next episode is going to be The Congress by Ari Fulman, starring Robin Wright, as we are going to unpack the Academy of the Oscars, exploring issues of inclusivity and the purpose of the awards. As always, we'd love to hear from you, so send us an email at celebratingcinema at lab111.nl or leave a message on our website. Otherwise, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was really great. Yeah, thanks so much.